seven, Stan Phillips. Good morning, Met fans. Happy Wednesday. Happy hump day to you. Well, we got over one hump yesterday. We won a game against the Nationals. Yes, as I always say, you got to win those divisional rivalry games. Although the Nationals and Phillies may not be the team we expected them to be this year, especially the Nationals. Nationals, we expected nothing out of. You still have to beat your divisional teams. And after taking the series against the Phillies over the weekend, the Mets did start a three-game series with the Nationals with a 4-2 win on Tuesday. Now, how did all this happen? Well, let's start off with the Met offense. They had a problem early on leaving men on base in this game. After stranding a pair of two-out runners in the third, the Mets had another chance for some runs against Patrick Corbin. Francisco Lindor started things off with an infield single and would steal second before Pete Alonso walked to give J.D. Davis an RBI chance. Davis smoked the line drive up the middle, but the shortstop was playing him there and caught it. Starling Marte stroke, struck out, and Eduardo Escobar lined out to left field to end the threat. The Mets would have had another chance in the fifth, but couldn't get the clutch hit to put any runners. Overall, the team left 12 runners on base and batted 2 for 14 with runners in scoring position. Now, Neil got the Mets scoring started finally in the sixth after Corbin was pulled for the bullpen. Alonzo and Davis singled to start the inning, and after a Marte strikeout, Escobar walked to bring up McNeil. He doubled down the line to score Alonzo and Davis. James McCann hit a sacrifice fly to score Escobar to give the Mets a 3-2 lead at the time. Now, Carlos Carrasco, he's pitching as advertised this year. He pitched great again, scattering runners and getting 1-2-3 innings. He gave up one run on a two-out double by Mikel Franco in the fourth inning, and a solo shot by Riley Adams in the fifth, but was peppering corners and getting his split pitch over the plate, and that was good to see. He also used his fastball more Tuesday, 50% of the time, than he has in any start this season, so he was feeling good about his stuff. Now, his final line was six and two-third innings on 82 pitches. Nice pitch count there. Seven hits, two earned runs, zero walks, and five strikeouts. Now, the Mets would add on the ninth inning. Mark Conha would reach on a two-base throwing error, and Lindor would hit a single and advance a second after Juan Soto missed the cutoff man. Put men on second and third with zero outs. Alonzo was intentionally walked, and Davis drove in Conha with a sacrifice fly. Marte and Escobar would ground out to squander another chance as the Mets went into the final frame up 4-2. to two. Now, the Mets bullpen shut the door on the Nets as Drew Smith... Joey Rodriguez and Edwin Diaz, who have been pitching great all year, pitched the final two in one-third innings. Now, in the bottom of the ninth, Diaz struck out Josh Bell for giving up a single to Nelson Cruz. Diaz bounced back to Yadiel Hernandez to ground into a double play and get the save. So a nice win by the Mets in National Stadium. You never want to take those division games lightly, even though the Nationals aren't a good team. Everyone's a major leaguer. And on any given day, a team can win, so I'll take it. Now, there were some transactions yesterday, one involving, shall we say, franchise number two, number three, maybe Seaver number one, good in number two, now the Grom number three. 
Uh, DeGrom is now throwing from 60 feet. And uh, also, it should be noted that the Mets picked up Locke St. John off of waivers from the Cubs. And in doing so, they transferred DeGrom to the 60-day injured list. Now, DeGrom has not pitched this season as he deals with a stress reaction in his shoulder. Now, despite the transfer, the latest on news on the injury was still positive. Mets GM Billy Epward told reporters prior to Tuesday's game in Washington that DeGrom has begun throwing out to 60 feet at light intensity. Buck Showalter was asked about DeGrom prior to Tuesday's game, and while he did not have much to add to the situation, he did say the ace is where he should be in his rehab. Everything's going well. I'm going to stay out of the doctor and trainer business, but that's where he's supposed to be, uh, Buck said. I'm not going to stay ahead or behind, say ahead or behind, but he likes the way he's progressing. Now, the Met Ace received an MRI a couple weeks ago that showed considerable healing, and he was cleared to begin loading and strengthening the shoulder. The move to the 60-day IL is just a paper move to make room for St. John. He's only tossed eight big league games, seven of them with the Rangers in 2019 and one with the Cubs earlier this year. He owned a 2.58 ERA in AAA last year and struck out 75 batters in 59.1 innings. Now, with DeGrom injured, the pitching staff has really stepped up. And one of the question marks, maybe the biggest question mark out of all of them, all the starters, was Carlos Carrasco. And he is looking good on the mound compared to 2021. He now has a 3.19 ERA and a 1.000 whip this season. And that ain't too shabby. That's all-star quality. And after the win, manager Buck Showalter spoke about Carrasco's efficiency with pitches so far as the veteran righty struck out five and allowed just two earned runs over six and two-third innings against the Nats. I think he's able to finish things, Showalter said. He's able to get over his leg and really extending it through his delivery. It's hard to pitch when you're not 100%. Carlos, the way he is, he's going to try and compete, and I just think he's in a lot better place physically. Carrasco credited the preparation he does with catchers James McGann or Thomas Nino before the game as the main reason he can be efficient on the mound. I think the way we do everything before the game, either James or Nito, what we're going to do in the game, that's what we go for. We have a plan before the game, and that's what we've been. If something changes, we do it in the game. But as of right now, everything is working great. The 35-year-old spoke about feeling free on the mound this season compared to last year when he batted, bat, battled injuries and struggled. It's completely different this year than last year, Carrasco said. Last year from my injury in my elbow, and this year I feel free. Even I got surprised myself today, just throwing a couple of 95s right there. I just want to continue to work and go every five days and do my job. That's what I need to do. Carrasco has relied on a slider this season, but on Tuesday, he did mention that the ball was somewhat slippery and adjusted to throw more fastballs. It was a feel, Carrasco said. I couldn't feel the ball. It was kind of a bit slippery, the balls today, but we had to make an adjustment, and that's what I did. More importantly, we won the game, and that's what it's all about. Here's Carlos Carrasco telling you guys exactly how he felt yesterday. How do you think, besides the results, why do you think you've been able to, to also be so efficient with the way that you're pitching so far? I think the way we, we're doing everything before the game, either uh, Jens or Nito. Uh, what we're going to do in the game, that's what we go for. So we have planned before the game, and that's what we've been doing. So if something changes during the game, so we go back in there and change it for a little bit. But uh, as of right now, everything's been working great. 
last start out, you you've relied heavily on that slider. Today it was much more fastball. Was that just a feel thing, or was it a, a game plan against this team? You know what? It was a feel. Uh, the ball couldn't feel the ball. It's kind of a little bit slippery the the ball the baseball today. But you know what? We have to make an adjustment. That's what I did. And uh, the more important, we won the game, and that's all about. Offensively, you know, you get the beginning uh, being down two nothing. Uh, what does that do for your confidence at that point? Because you come in the end and you're down through nothing. You know what? I think the more important, I got those two run right there. And uh, the next inning, just getting some zero. And uh, those guys that came back through running that inning right there. Lindor making that great play. Uh, McCain just throwing out that guy in second base. So it was really good, man. And they just hold it again in there. When you get defense like that behind you, what's that like? You know what? This, they help a lot. Okay, so... We go for it, and, uh, and that's what we did. And the bullpen, they came in, and they did a great job, man. Carlos, what is your mentality when you go back out there after the guys get you the lead back and you're facing those three hitters in particular? The mentality is just uh, to strike them out or get them the in and zero. Um, those guys work so hard to get them those three run. And um, I always go in there. I'm just trying to, to keep it that way. Are you thinking with Bellup? Are you trying to induce the double play at that point? Yes, of course, yes. And um, I got that pitch right there and um, just hit him right through to second bay. We did that double play right there. And uh, Nelson Cruz came behind and uh, he did get a uh, fly ball. Whatever team we play out there, we have to play hard, no matter what, who we play in there. And uh, this game, they continue so quick. Um, you guys saw the game in Phillies, 7-1, and uh, we won that game. So that this this game changed so much, and uh, that's why we have to play hard. Carlos, I know you had a lot of confidence in yourself coming into this season, that you were healthy and, and would be able to perform, but just how much satisfaction personally have you taken in, in what you've been able to do here to start the season? You know what? It's completely different this year than last year. Last year, coming from being injury, my elbow, this year I completely... Uh, feel free. Even I got surprised myself today, just a couple 95 right there. Okay, it's getting bad. You know what? I just want to continue to work and um, go every five day in there, just do my job, and that's, that's what I need to do. Tonight, uh, some great base running, great tags. Uh, we had a big relay, and uh, uh, Esky made a big catch of a pop-up out of a shift, and uh, no, I don't want to forget five or six things, but we pitched well. You know, it starts with Carrasco. You know, Carlos was good again and uh, got the job done out of the pen. You know, big out from uh, Joe Ellie, and then Edwin continues to, uh, you know, pitch well for us. goes without saying, but a lot of, you know, even uh, Esky, I thought, I thought he blocked Bell out a little bit on the uh, double by, by Mac, uh, Great line drive read by uh, Lindor to get back and not get doubled off. We've been, you know, the players have been stressing that about running the bases. So you know, a lot of people contributed. And I thought McKeon had a great night. Two big throwouts. You know, Smitty did a good job of holding the runner and being one-two to the plate to give him a chance. And uh, so just a lot of contributors. Did you see the rat out there? I did. <laughs> that was a rat. That was a rat. <laughs> you sure? Sure. And that was Jeff McNeil. A rat did run out in the field yesterday. How about that? So there really was a rat in yesterday's ball game, and Jeff McNeil saw it. Ah, remember the days of controversy between Lindor and McNeil. And how about our good buddy Noah Syndergaard? Did he or didn't he? Did he appear to take a, a shot at the Mets after Los Angeles pitcher Reed Detmer's 
tossed a no-hitter on Tuesday against the Rays. An Instagram story where Syndergaard regrammed the Angels' celebration of no-no. Syndergaard wrote, This is what a real no-hitter looks like. This comment was an apparent dig at the Mets who used five pitchers to throw a combined no-hitter against the Phillies on April 29th at City Field. Now, Syndergaard, who left the Mets for the Angels as a free agent this past offseason while rejecting New York's qualifying offer, was upset with the Mets shortly after departing. Before Syndergaard agreed to a one-year deal with the Angels worth $21 million, he did not give the Mets the opportunity to match or exceed it. But that didn't stop Syndergaard's camp from complaining about radio silence from the Mets. During the 2021 season, Syndergaard repeatedly expressed his desire to return to the Mets and said late in the season that he would be grateful if the Mets made him the qualifying offer, hinting that he would accept it. After leaving the Mets, Syndergaard also cited the uncertainty surrounding them at the time. Syndergaard is pitching well for the Angels this season with a 2.45 ERA, 3.37 FIP, and 1.05 whip in 29.1 innings over five starts. But he's doing it without his regular high-octane fastball. Syndergaard's fastball this season is averaging 94.1 miles per hour. It did average 97.7 for Tommy John surgery, and he's striking out a career low 6.44 per nine. His career average is 9.61. So you wonder if the hitters will catch up with Noah, because when you lose a few miles off your fastball, that usually ends up catching up with you. Now, we all know the game today is determined by defensive metrics by the uh, front office staff. Well, guess who has been the top defender in 2002 by one popular metric? Yes, Jeff McNeil. His defensive matrix were favorable, but somewhat surprised Tuesday how good they were this season. He's been fantastic. As measured by one particular statistics out above average, McNeil has been the Mets' best defensive player. Now, that's weird because even McNeil says, we got some great defensive guys and I think we are playing well team defense, but it's a bit surprising. McNeil was a plus three in outs above average as a second baseman, according to Baseball Savant, and responsible for saving two runs. At a left field, as a left fielder, he's been at league average at zero. Further analyzing the numbers, McNeil had 62 attempts at second base. His estimated success rate was 75%. His actual success rate was 79%. In left field, he had 23 attempts. His estimated success rate was 94%. His actual success rate was 96%. Overall, he ranked in MLB's 93rd percentile for outs above average. Such strong metrics might seem surprising for a player who has primarily been known for his bat throughout his career, but McNeil has brought a dependable glove to the field, particularly over the last two seasons. Last year, he finished plus five and outs above average as a second baseman and left fielder. Now, McNeil's versatility remains an important component of allowing manager Buck Showalter to shuffle his lineup, first with giving Robbie Cano opportunities. The veteran infielder was released Sunday after a DFA earlier in the week, and more recently with Louis Guillaume at second base. So what he has done has really been fantastic. Uh, he entered the play yesterday offensively with a 323 average, 387 OBP, and 448 slugging percentage, and that's the team best batting average. So he would like to think he's compensated for any underwhelming days of the plate this season with his glove, and that's what a good ball player does. Uh, he's been contributing in and out. Now, you guys listened to the podcast last year. I said there was something off with McNeil. I still say he was hurt, and I said he's one of the better players. I kept touting Nimmo and McNeil as being the catalyst to the Mets. This was before they made all these transactions during the offseason. And if those two guys are on fire, watch out, world. Here come the Metsies.
Now, McNeil was minus two and outs above average as a third baseman in 2020. And they've really kept McNeil away from third base. Maybe that's not his specialty. And even McNeil said that third base was his most uh, uncomfortable position. So it looks like he's fit in at second or left field. I guess if he has to play third base, he would. Uh, but McNeil barely played the outfield in the minor leagues. His college experience, he played left center and right at Long Beach State, has served him well with the Mets. Now, in the minor leagues, he tried to play outfield as much as he could, but in the minor leagues, they saw him as an infield. Even in the minor leagues, he took five balls almost every day out there trying to get out there. So I knew that would probably be the best way to get to the major leagues. And you know what? Jeff, you fit in whether it's second base or outfield. Now, a lot of Mets fans are wondering, should we be happy? Should we be excited about the Mets start? Well, I say yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, enjoy the early season prosperity uh, because what they're doing is fantastic. Uh, you never know what the season is going to begin, how it's going to begin and end, but you can't ask for a better start. And uh, I think this team has what it takes. I mean, we got a comfortable lead already, but that could vanish in a two-week spell where you just play bad and probably Atlanta is a team we're going to have to watch out for. But things are looking good. Do not be negative about the positive start. Embrace it. Enjoy it. And like I said, this could keep on steamrolling. But we just want to see what's going to happen, don't we? Now it's time for Met Transactions. And birthdays. We're going to start with the birthdays first. Happy birthday to Jerry Martin, born this date in 1949. Happy birthday to Walt Terrell, born this date in 1958. And happy birthday to Jordan Yamamoto, born this date in 1996. Now on the transaction front, on this date in 1965, the Mets purchased Chuck Hiller, Chuck Hiller from the San Francisco Giants. And on this date in 1972, one of the most famous trades in Met history, one that got a lot of publicity, occurred when the Mets traded Charlie Williams to the San Francisco Giants for Willie Mays. And on this date in 1987, the Mets traded Ricky Nelson to the Cleveland Indians for Don Schultze. And on this date in 1993, the Mets claimed Mark Dewey off of waivers from the Pittsburgh Pirates. I mean, the Pirates claimed Mark Dewey off of waivers from the Mets. And on this date in 1995, the Mets traded Mike Remlinger to the Cincinnati Reds for Kobe Cradle. Who remembers all those transactions? Raise your hand if you do. Now time for our PSA. If you're joining this podcast, by all means, please do subscribe. We upload one every day and you'll be notified when one is ready. We're available on all major carriers. So whatever you're, where you listen to your podcast, your music, wherever you rock out to, wherever you listen to other people talk, subscribe this podcast to that little hinky dink, whatever it is whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it may be. Uh, you'll be glad you did. We're here every day to provide Met entertainment for you. And if you're not a member of the New York Mets Baseball Way of Life, the Facebook group, you must. That is the place to be to get all your Met information. We have such great people on that group. We don't talk smack like other Met groups or baseball groups you see. We get deep into the Mets, and you'll enjoy it and be glad you joined. And if you ever need to reach out to me, like some of you have, any comments, questions, concerns, suggestions, whatever, please reach out to me at philstan41 at gmail.com. You'll be glad you did.
Now, what is going on in the group? As we mentioned before, Willie Mays, Mets acquired Willie Mays on this day, and we go into detail about the Willie Mays trade. Did you know that after promising the club would never trade him, the cash-strapped Giants sent Willie Mays, the only remaining player that moved to the West Coast with the team, to New York, the city where he began his Hall of Fame career in 1951, for right-hander Charlie Williams and 50000 in cash. Horace Stoneman, unable to guarantee his aging superstar an income when the outfielder retired, extracts a promise from the Mets when they say, when they say they will pay the Say Hey Kid 50000 annually for 10 years after the future Hall of Famer stops playing. So the Mets hooked him up. The Mets did hook him up. And on this date in 1996, on John Franco Day, the New York veteran reliever is ejected from the game along with eight other players as a result of participating in a fifth-inning bench-inning bench-clearing brawl at Shea Stadium. Before the game, the Mets celebrated their closer's recent 300th career save, but his unavailability in the ninth leads to three hurlers combining to give up the tying runs in the team's eventual 7-6 walk-off win over Chicago. Now it's time for a Met Trivia and Jeopardy question of the day. Who's ready? Who's got their pen and paper ready to lock in the answers? Here's the trivia question. Who was the MVP of the 1986 National League Championship Series? And our final Jeopardy, two clues as always. On May 26, 2014, around four earned runs, blowing a 2-1 lead over the Pittsburgh Pirates and earning his first loss of the season. Immediately after the game ended, he was released by the Mets, and he wore number 47 as a Met. We'll be back to talk all about that tomorrow. Uh, I'm sorry, at the end of the podcast. Maybe if you're listening tomorrow, it is tomorrow, but at the end of this podcast, we will tell you what the answers are to both the trivia and the Jeopardy question of the day. Now let's talk about the great career of Walt Terrell. That's actually his first name was Charles Walter Terrell. He was born on May 11, 1958, and he was a starting pitcher from 1982 to 92. First with the New York Mets from 82 to 84, Detroit Tigers 85-88, Padres 89, and yes, the Yankees in 89, Pirates in 90, and the Tigers in 92. So... What's it all about with Walter Terrell? We'll tell you. In 1979, he played collegiate summer baseball for the Chatham A's at Cape Cod Baseball League. He posted a 9-4 record with a 2.20 ERA in 13 complete games. He set the league record for innings pitched in the season was named the league's outstanding pitcher. He was inducted into the Cape Cod Baseball League Hall of Fame in 2007. He was traded along with Ron Darling from the Texas Rangers, to the Mets for Lee Mazzilli, and that trade it turned out to be a fantastic one for the Metropolitans. On August 6, 1983, Terrell hit a two-run homer off of future Hall of Famer Ferguson Jenkins of the Chicago Cubs in the third inning, then another two-run homer the very next inning. Jenkins shut down the rest of the offense, but lost the game 4-1. to one. Later that same month, Terrell had another three hits, including a three-run homer. In five years as a hitter, he logged only three home runs and 10 RBIs in all, but hit three home runs and seven RBIs in 17 days. Talk about getting hot. Now, Terrell was dealt from the Mets to the Tigers for Howard Johnson at the winter meetings on December 7, 1984. Against the California Angels at Tiger Stadium on August 20th, 20th 1986, 
Walt had a no-hitter broken up with two out in the ninth inning by Wally Joyner and Wally Joyner's double. It was only a hit he would allow in a 3-0 victory. He also surrounded the first of Mark McGuire's 583 homers on August 25, 1986. He had a career-best 17 wins during the Tigers' drive to the 1987 American League East pennant. He finished his career with a mark of 111, 124, and 321 games, 321 games with a 4.22 ERA. He struck out 929 in 1,986 and two-third innings pitched. Although a weak-hitting pitcher posting a 120 batting average with three homers and 10 RBIs, he was an above-average fielding pitcher. He recorded a 980 fielding percentage with only 10 errors and 489 chances and started 30 eight double plays. Now he was born in Jefferson, Indiana and attended Moorhead State University where he was a member of the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity. He batted left-handed and threw right-handed. He had three children, Ryan, Michael, and Aaron. Now let's talk about Jordan Yamamoto, shall we? Uh, he previously played for the Marlins and he's been a baseball pitcher with the Met organization. And I think he's still technically in the organization. I'm not sure. I'd have to get clarification on that. Let me check. Hold on. Yes, I still believe he is with the Met organization. Uh, he just may not be on the 40-man roster. But anyway, he was born to uh, on, on uh, this date also, I should say. I am so tongue-tied today. He was born in Ahu. Japan to Larry, a diesel mechanic, and Candace Yamamoto, vice president of a credit union. He is of half Filipino descent as well as Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, and Portuguese ancestry. And he has two sisters. He attended St. Louis School in Honolulu, Hawaii. Per Yamamoto, his, he first caught the attention of scouts when they came to the ballpark to watch his teammate Cody Medeiros pitch in the summer before his senior year. He committed to play college baseball at Arizona on a full scholarship over competing offers from Utah, Oregon, and Loyola Marymount. Well, Yamamoto's fastball topped out at 92 miles per hour in the state tournament in his senior year. Now, the Milwaukee Brewers selected him in the 12th round of the 2014 MLB draft, and he signed with Milwaukee rather than attend Arizona. After signing with Milwaukee, uh, they assigned him to the AZL Brewers, where he went 0-1 with a 4.57 ERA in 21.2 innings. 2015, he pitched for the, he pitched for the Helena Brewers, where he pitched to a 1-6 record with a 7.84 ERA in 14 games, 11 starts. Yamamoto played for the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers, Rattlers in 2016, posting a 7-8 record and a 3.82 ERA in the Carolina Mudcats in 2017, where he pitched to a 9-4 record and a 2.51 ERA in 22 games, 18 starts. On January 25, 2018, the Brewers traded Yamamoto, Isan Diaz, Lewis Brinson, and Monty Harrison to the Miami Marlins for Christian Yelich. He was a non-roster invitee to 2018 spring training and spent the 2018 with the Jupiter Hammerheads of the Class A Advanced Florida State League and the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp of the Class AA Southern League. In seven starts for Jupiter, he was 4-1 with a 1.55 ERA. And three starts for Jacksonville, he went 1-0 with a 2.12 ERA. After the season, he pitched for the Salt River Rafters in the Arizona Fall League. The Marlins added Yamamoto to their 40-man roster after the 2018 season. He returned to Jacksonville to begin the 2019 season. 
On June 12, 2019, Yamamoto was called up to the major leagues for the first time following an injury to pitcher Jose Urena. He pitched seven shutout innings with five strikeouts and earned a win as the Marlins defeated the Cardinals 9-0. In his next appearance, which was against the Cardinals again, he pitched another seven shutout innings with seven strikeouts and a 6-0 victory. Yamamoto set a franchise record with 14 scoreless innings to start his career. Yamamoto pitched in four games for the club in 2020, notching an 18.26 ERA with 13 strikeouts and 11.1 innings pitched. On January 28, 2021, Yamamoto was designated for assignment by the Marlins following the signing of Anthony Bass. Now, on February 1, 2021, Yamamoto was traded to the Mets in exchange for Federico Polanco. On May 25, he was placed on the 60-day injured list with right shoulder soreness. On April 5, 2022, he was designated for assignment to create room on the roster for Chasen Shreve, whose contract was selected. He cleared waivers and was outrighted to AAA on April 10th. Now, Yamamoto, if you've ever seen his body, he's got tattoos all over his body, which honor his parents, two sisters, and his homeland. During a 2019 start, Yamamoto wrote a message on his hat in support of the 30-meter telescope protest. He also took to Twitter to voice his support. In October 19, uh, Yamamoto became engaged to Madison Ahern. They married in December 2020. Now, as a minor league baseball player, Yamamoto took up haircutting as a hobby. He would offer teammates free haircuts to practice his skills and then save them money. So if you ever need a haircut, just ring up Jordan Yamamoto. Now, if I may, I'd like to talk about Jerry Martin. Who remembers Jerry Martin as a Met? Well, Jerry played in the major leagues from 1974 to 80, 84. On November 17th, Martin Kansas City Royals teammates Willie Aikens and Willie Wilson unfortunately each received three-month prison terms on misdemeanor attempted cocaine possession charge. They became the first active major leaguers to serve jail time. Now, Martin was born in Columbia, South Carolina, attended Olympia High School there. He then attended Furman University in Greenville. He starred in basketball, was named All-Southern Conference Tournament MVP. In 1971, after leading the Furman Palladians to their first conference championship. Now, despite his prowess in basketball, he decided to follow his father, Barney Martin, who pitched in the majors with the Cincinnati Reds, as well as younger brother, Michael, a left-handed pitcher selected fifth in the overall 1970 MLB draft by the Philadelphia Phillies. A year later, Martin signed with the club as an amateur free agent. Despite having spent three seasons together in the same organization, the brothers never were teammates. Jerry earned Western Carolina's MVP honors in 1972 when he batted 316 with 12 homers and 112 RBIs for the Spartanburg Phillies. Over four seasons in the Phillies farm system, Martin batted 303 with 43 home runs and 290 RBIs to earn a September call-up to the majors in 1974. Making his major league debut as a late-inning defensive replacement for Greg Luzinski on September 7th, Martin did not log an at-bat. When given his first major league at-bat two days later, he drove in Luzinski with the first run of the Phillies' 2-0 victory over the Cardinals. After splitting the 75 season between the Phillies and AAA Toledo Mudhens, Martin spent the entire 1976 season serving as a late-inning replacement for Greg Luzinski. I remember those days when Martin would come in late in the game. Now, he appeared in 130 games but logged only 129 at-bats. 
He made just one plate appearance in the 76th NLCS against the Reds. He reached first base on an error and scored on Jay Johnstone's triple in the ninth inning of the third game. I love Jay Johnstone. What a character he was. Remember that, like, Brockabellum bro he used to wear? Anyway, before I digress, any, Jay Johnstone wrote a couple good funny books, too, in baseball. Uh, despite having been a promising prospect for the Phillies, Martin would never rise above fourth outfielder status over his next two seasons with the Phillies. Just as pitchers and catchers were reporting to spring training in 79, Martin was sent to the Cubs in a blockbuster deal. Martin, Barry Foote, and Ted Sizemore and minor leaguers Derek Botello and Henry Mack went to the Cubs for Greg Gross, Dave Rader, and Manny Trio. Now, finally given his opportunity to start, Martin had a career year his first season in Chicago. Playing center field and batting six in the club lineup, he clubbed 19 homers and drove in 73 runs while scoring 74. He followed that up with a career-high 23 homers in 1980. After a contract dispute, Martin asked to be traded and was sent to the San Francisco Giants with Jesus Figueroa and a player to be named later for Phil Nastu and Joe Strain at the 1980 winter meetings. Now, Martin signed the five-year deal shortly after arriving at San Francisco. However, his tenure with the Giants ended up being shorter than expected. His numbers dipped in the strikes short in the 81 season as he hit just four homers and drove in 25 while batting 241. After just one season with the Giants, Martin was dealt to the Kansas City Royals for Rich Gale and Bill Olasky. Now, a new position came with the change of scenery as Martin was shifted to right field with the Royals. He got off to a hot start in Kansas City, batting 304 with five homers and 25 RBIs through May. Though he would call off by the end of the season, his 266 batting average, 15 homers and 65 ribbies in 1982, was a marked improvement over his previous season. He got off to a fast start in 1983 as well, but a muscle tear in his right wrist ended his season on April 24th. Toward the end of the 1983 season, Martin and several of the Kansas City Royals were questioned by U.S. Attorney Jim Marquez in connection with a federal cocaine probe. Following the season, he, Willie Akins, and Willie Wilson pleaded guilty to attempting to purchase cocaine, while former teammate Vida Blue pleaded guilty to possession of three grams of cocaine. November 17th, Martin, Akins, Blue, and Wilson were all sentenced to a year in prison with nine months of it suspended and ordered to surrender to a Fort Worth, Texas minimum security federal correctional institution on December 5th. Akins was given until January 5th until, in order to complete a drug treatment program. Now, Martin was released early from prison on February 23rd, 1984. However, Commissioner Bowie Coons subsequently suspended all four players for the 1984 season. The suspensions were reduced after the appeal, and the four were allowed to return to their teams on May 15th. By then, Martin had signed with the Mets, and that's how he became a Met. Martin joined the Mets on May 16th in San Francisco. Through 51 games with the Mets, Martin just hit 154 with three homers and five RBIs, and was released on September 30. A bid for a comeback in 1985 found no takers, so he retired. He took a coaching job in the Phillies minor league system shortly after his retirement. He spent the first six weeks of the 2008 season as interim first base coach for the eventual world champion Phillies while Davey Lopes was undergoing treatment for prostate cancer. Martin most recently served as hitting coach for the Detroit Tigers AA affiliate, the Erie Seawolves, in 2011 and 12. Tommy John called Martin a strong defensive outfielder. 
He's the son of Barney Martin, like I said, who pitched a single game for the Cincinnati Reds in 1953. Now it's time for the Met trivia question of the day. The trivia question was, who was the MVP of the 1986 NLCS? Well, the correct answer is Mike Scott. Congrats to John Tierney on being the first to submit the correct answer. Our Jeopardy! Two clues as always on May 26, 2014, around four earned runs, blowing a 2-1 lead over Pittsburgh Pirates and earning his first loss this season. Immediately after the game ended, he was released by the Mets, and he wore number 47 of the Met. Well, a Met, I should say. What is the correct response to the final Jeopardy? Well, it's who is Jose Valverde? Congrats to our good friend John Tierney on being the first to submit the correct answer. Well, that's going to wrap up another great Met podcast on New York Mets Baseball Way of Life, the podcast. I want to thank you all again for listening, and it means the world to me, and please do subscribe. I want you guys listening every day. You guys are the best. You rock it out of this world. And tomorrow we'll be back to talk about our usual good Met stuff. And tonight we got our good buddy Tyler McGill going against, McGill going against Aaron Sanchez on the hill. Uh, McGill 4-1 with a 2.43 ERA and 36 Ks against Aaron Sanchez 1-2, 8.56 ERA, 9 Ks. The game will be on SNY and on radio WCBS. So check it out and we'll be back to talk about it all day tomorrow. Uh, that's it for now. Enjoy the game. Enjoy your hump day and we'll talk soon. Step right up and greet the Mets.